0: you desire to. So let let me begin today by reading you a passage of Scripture uh, that is not our text for the morning, but it's one that you may find you can relate to, or maybe you know somebody who does. It says this, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that whenever I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death?" What do you think? Amen. Does that remind you of anybody that you know? Maybe even you, maybe even your experience at times, maybe even recently. Is it maybe even like the story of your Christian life? You might think, you know, is this just what it's going to be? Is this just a fact of life? Is this going to be my experience? I mean is this what our lives are going to be like until Jesus takes us home one day and sets us free from the struggle? Kind of consigned to this sort of miserable cycle of of trying and and failing and two steps forward and 1.9999 steps back? Or is there a victory of some kind available in this life over the sin that besets us and enslaves us and keeps us from serving Jesus and loving Jesus the way that we know that we should? Is there perhaps something available to us that we haven't yet experienced? Is there perhaps some power we just have not understood or maybe just not put to use? Let me show you a a short video that some of you have seen before because it's part of the introduction to one of the sessions in our newcomer Sunday school class. Let's go ahead and and show this testimony. One day,
1: a number of years ago, Makanzu, a student at a Bible college in the Congo, approached his teacher, an Alliance missionary. Mademoiselle Spriggins, I'm preparing to become a pastor, but I live a miserable life. I have no joy, no peace, no zeal. How can I win people to Christ if it is to live this kind of life? Although Makanzu knew Jesus Christ as his Savior, He had no idea of what it meant to walk in the fullness of the Spirit. After examining the scripture with his teacher, Makanzu felt convicted of his need to live not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. He prayed and asked God to show him what needed to change in his life. And God revealed several areas in Makanzu's life that were not fully surrendered to the Spirit. He confessed to his teacher that he had cheated in his studies, and to another professor whose class he had disrupted. He confessed to his wife that he had a hidden stash of pornography which he then proceeded to destroy. Obedience to the Spirit severed the enemy's hold upon the kanzu, and his joy, his zeal, and power returned. The rains have come, he exclaimed, and he went on to lead thousands of men and women in his country to the Lord. It all started with a simple act of obedience. Friends, this is the essence of sanctification, the work that God wants to do through His Spirit to mold us into the very image of Christ as we submit our lives fully to His control. One of the great distinguishing marks of the Christian and Missionary Alliance is the insistence that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ not only lives in us, but He lives through us. In our next study, we'll learn more about how this happens as we encounter Jesus Christ, our sanctifier.
0: Uh, We began a series last week in which I am actually preaching through the topics of that that Newcomers Sunday School class that we've done so many times, CNMA DNA, the class that introduces people to the Christian Missionary Alliance and also in a lot of respects to our church. And again, this is not a series about a denomination. It's not a series about the ins and outs of how to, what an Alliance Church is, although you'll learn some of that. But, but at the core of Alliance teaching is the belief in the centrality of Jesus Christ. We are all about Jesus, in particular what we call the fourfold gospel. Jesus is our Savior, He is our Sanctifier, He is our Healer, and He is our Coming King. And this week we are up to that big long word, Sanctifier. Yes, it's kind of a theological word, but it has a pretty plain meaning, and I'm going to use that word a lot today, so I want you to be clear on what it means. To be sanctified is to be made holy, to be set apart for God, ultimately to become more like Jesus. That's what sanctification is. So let me read you our passage for this morning. It's found in Galatians chapter 2, actually 2 and 3, and we're going to kind of catch Paul in the middle of a thought here. Uh, But I'm going to try to sort all that out for you in a few minutes. But for now, let's start in verse 17 of Galatians chapter 2, and I'm going to read right through verse 3 of chapter 3. Paul says this, Galatians 2, 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor, for through the law. I died to the law so that I might live to God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Over the course of this series, uh, I'm going to try to take the opportunity to fill you in on a few little snippets of Alliance history along with teachings, but Almost exactly 150 years ago, uh, December of 1873, a 30-year-old Canadian pastor accepted a call to pastor a Presbyterian church in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, This pastor's name was Albert Benjamin Simpson. He was later to become the founder of what we know today as the Christian and Missionary Alliance. But when he accepted the call to go to Louisville, Simpson was already a very... Uh, effective gospel communicator, he was very young, he was only thirty, but this this church he was pastoring up in Hamilton, Ontario had grown very large. Uh, he could preach powerful messages about the salvation available in christ but but by his own admission, Simpson struggled when he when it came to teaching and preaching about holiness about about living for Jesus after you were saved. And that's because he felt no sense of real victory in his own life. He was still living in Romans chapter 7, which is where I opened the service with, that I can't, I'm trying to do things, but I, I don't do them. And then the things I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. That's where he was living. And of course, this is very frustrating for a young pastor. But one night, Reverend Simpson was poring over a book by uh, the holiness teacher, W.E. Broadman. And the book was called The Higher Christian Life. And Simpson was struck by a sentence he read in those pages, and the sentence said this, that there was a time after a person's salvation when, and here's the quote, Christ comes into the believer's life and substitutes His strength, His holiness, His joy, His love, His faith, and His power for all of our worthlessness, helplessness, and nothingness. And a light went on for A.B. Simpson at that moment. And he came to know Jesus that night not only as his Savior, which he had done 16 years before, but now as his sanctifier. And this truth that there is an experience of knowing Jesus as sanctifier that is distinct from just coming to him as Savior has been a core teaching of the Christian and Missionary Alliance really since the time of our founding. Now, This teaching is not necessarily shared by every church that you will walk into. It is a little bit confusing to some people, and it is perhaps very easily misunderstood. So I want to do my best to kind of boil it down for you this morning and invite you to make it real in your own life if you haven't already done so. And I'm speaking today to Christians. I'm speaking to those of you who already know Jesus. If you're saved, if your sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus by God's grace, through your faith in Him, as we talked about last week when we discussed Jesus as Savior, then you need to know something. God already sees you as holy. God already sees you as holy because you're covered with Jesus. That's your position. You are justified. You have been declared innocent. But sanctification, sanctification is the process of becoming in practice what you already are in position. It's the process of becoming in our experience what God has already declared us to be in Christ, and that is holy and acceptable to Him. So just three questions for us today as we seek to understand more clearly what this means. First, this thing called sanctification, where does it come from? Second, how does it work? What are the dynamics of it? What is actually going on when we're being sanctified? And then lastly, how do we receive it? So where does it come from? How does it work? and then how do we get it? So hopefully that's pretty simple. Let me just go ahead, and this is going to be real simple because I'm going to tell you the answer to the first question right away. Where does sanctification come from? I will tell you. It is a gift from God that comes to you by grace through faith. It's a gift from God that comes to you by grace through faith. Now, you might say, that sounds like kind of where my salvation came from. You'd be right. That's exactly where your salvation came from. And and that's one of the ideas that Paul is trying to pound into the head of these stubborn Galatians in chapter 2 and 3 of this book. You see, a bunch of a bunch of false teachers had come into the churches in the region of Galatia, and they were telling these gent they were telling the Gentile believers, the ones who were not Jews, most of the early a lot of the earlier Christians were Jews, but it quickly spread to the Gentiles, and and the teachers were saying to the Gentiles, look, it's all fine and dandy for you to come to salvation through faith in Jesus, apart from works. But in order to be a good Christian, in order to be the kind of a Christian that God really accepts and blesses, in order to really live like a Christian, here's what you need to do. You need to obey the Jewish law. And that starts with being circumcised because the, the, the obedience to the law of Moses has always been the thing that has distinguished the godly people in the world from the ungodly people in the world. And so you need to start doing these things. In other words, what they were saying is, oh, it's okay, you can be saved by faith, but you have to be sanctified by works. And as you can see, Paul reacts quite violently against these teachers. He says some even meaner things about them later. But, but he minces no words with these people who are being led astray by their teaching and he says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And in chapter 3 verse 2, did you receive the Spirit, in other words, did you get saved, did you receive the Spirit by doing works of the law or by hearing with faith? If that's how you got started, then why are you changing horses now? If having begun in the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh, by your own efforts? And Paul says, no, just as salvation is a gift from God that you receive through faith, so is sanctification. So is sanctification. There's a testimony I hear a lot from Christians, and it goes something like this. Well, I got saved when I was a kid. I got saved early in life. You know, I walked an aisle at vacation Bible school or I prayed with my Sunday school teacher or whatever, and, you know, I've been a Christian ever since then, and I've been doing my best to be a good Christian and to get to be more like Jesus, and, and occasionally I succeed, but usually it's just a, it's a struggle. I really struggle. And, you know, that's, that's a lot of people's experience, obviously, and that person's heart is very often in the right place, but he's missing something. He's missing the real power behind sanctification. We do not get our sanctification through our own efforts and striving, just like we didn't get our salvation that way. Our deliverance from the power of sin, our deliverance from the power of sin comes from the same place that we got our deliverance from the penalty of sin, from God as a gift by His grace through faith. Now, we're going to come back to that later when it comes to how to receive it. But for now, hang on to that truth, and we're going to start talking about how this works. What is the dynamic behind our sanctification? Where does this power come from? What is it that truly changes us or sanctifies us? Let me go back to something I said a few minutes ago that that, that these false teachers were claiming and telling to these Christians. They were saying this, obeying the Jewish law, obeying the law of Moses, is what sets godly people apart from ungodly people. This really gets to the heart of the issue because to sanctify literally means to set apart. To set apart so there's a difference. See, the Jewish people, the Jews who had become believers, had always relied on the law, the law of Moses that they had to prove that they were different from other people. In fact, they had a shorthand way of referring to the Gentiles, those who didn't keep the law of Moses. They just called them sinners. So if you were a Jewish person, they were the Jews, and then they were the sinners, two kinds of people in the world. And, 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 and what happened, though, was that the gospel of Jesus introduced a crisis into this kind of thinking for these Jewish believers because if, if now they weren't relying on the law for their righteousness, but they're relying on the grace of God, if they're, if, they're, if they're saved by faith, that means that theoretically they could even stop obeying certain portions of the law and be okay. They could eat all the pork they wanted to. They could stop observing some of the Jewish holidays. They could even maybe stop circumcising their children but that, imagine what that would be like to, to think that way. And, and they started thinking, well, that would make us sinners. That would make us sinners, just like the other people of the world. How would they differentiate themselves from the rest of the world if they, if they, if they didn't have the law to do that? Here's Paul's point in verses 17 to 19, something like this. Look, I know you're used to thinking that way, but you need to know that, that things are different now that you're in Christ. And what sets you apart from the world now is not the way you trim your beard or the way that you put tassels on the right place on your garments or that you keep the Sabbath a certain way or the fact that you don't eat pork or shellfish. No, there's something else that sets you apart now. Not those ceremonial things and those customs you used to depend on. And in fact, Jewish believers, what separates you from the rest of the world is the same thing that separates the Gentile believers from the rest of the world too. The ones you used to call sinners. And here's what it is. Well, before I tell you what it is, let's first think about what we think it is. Let's first think about the things that we tend to think set Christians apart from the world today. Maybe it's what you might call clean living, you know? The idea is that Christians are less inclined to immoral habits, we're more faithful to our spouses, we're more honest in our business dealings, we're less vulgar in our language, we're nicer to our neighbors. Is that the difference? Well, assuming those things are even true, which in some cases might be arguable, then still, listen, there are a lot of Mormons who can give us more than a run for our money, right? And maybe some other people as well. So maybe that's not it. So if it's not clean living, maybe it's church involvement, you know, religious activity. Aren't the godliest Christians the ones with the best church attendance who serve the most faithfully in the church, and they know the Bible inside and out, and they give really generously to God's work? I think a lot of you have been around churches long enough to know that this is not always the case. And you know that some folks who seem to be the most religious people in church can be among the harshest, most self-righteous, and most unforgiving people that you know. And if you think about it, there are lots of people in other religions who are much, much more dedicated to their customs and rituals of their faith than we are. How many of you would like to fast every day for a month like your Muslim friends do? Now. Should Christians live morally good lives? Of course. Should Christians be meaningfully involved in their local church? Absolutely. Of course. And yes, there's certainly a very high correlation between the maturity level of Christians and things like clean living, if you want to call it that, and church attendance. Yes, but I think the exceptions to the rule point us to the truth that these are not the things that actually set Christians apart from the rest of the world. So what is, what does set us apart from the rest of the world? Here's the answer. If you're a Christian, you have something inside of you that the world doesn't have. Let me maybe rephrase that in a better way you have someone inside of you that the world doesn't have, and His name is the Holy Spirit, and He's the one that actually brought your spirit back to life at the time you believed in Christ. That's right. He's the one that made you born again. But that's not where His work ends because there's a lot more that He wants to do in your life besides just making you a child of God. Well, what are those things? Sometimes we think of the Holy Spirit. We picture Him kind of like a, a, a canister of nitrous oxide, right, that we add to our engine, And it supercharges the engine of our life at certain special moments and gives us a kind of turbo boost to serve God, you know, Holy Spirit. And then we go back to normal. Well, don't get me wrong, the Holy Spirit's got that kind of power. But He wants to do something a lot more lasting and of a lot more significance in your life. He wants to build Jesus in you. He wants to build Jesus in you. And in fact, he wants to activate in you what we often call the Christ life. He wants to make it so that Jesus actually lives through you, that Jesus lives through you. Here is where we're getting to the key verse in this passage, the one we've been kind of zeroing in on. It's verse verse 20 of chapter 2, and it's awesome, so I'm going to read it again. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What sets you apart as a Christian? The fact that Christ is living in you by the Holy Spirit. What sets you apart more and more as you grow as a believer? It's Christ living not just in you, but through you. That in Paul's words, the life you live, you live by faith in the Son of God, but yet he says, not I, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. This is where the power comes from, not just to look holy or to act holy, but to be holy. To be what God already sees you are, sees you as in Christ. And it happens not through polishing up your image, not through external behavioral changes. No. It also changes your desires, your motivations, and your affections. And this happens because, here's why it happens, because Christ is now living within you. He's living actively through you. And so these are not your desires, motivations, and affections. What you're experiencing are Christ's desires, Christ's motivations, and Christ's affections in your heart and in your mind and in your life. The open secret of the Christian life is this, that indwelling is more powerful than imitation. You've heard me say that before. Indwelling is more powerful than imitation. Are we called to imitate Jesus? Yes. Absolutely. Ephesians 5 says we're to be imitators of God. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. We're supposed to imitate Jesus, but trying to imitate Jesus in our own power is both impossible and frustrating. We get back in Romans 7 right away with the sinful nature overpowering all of our best efforts or else... Here's what's even more dangerous, actually, or else we find a way to conform on the outside so that our Christian life looks really good and really strong and really mature on the outside, to most of the people around us, but inside we're living a life with almost no joy, no real new desires or affections, and very little sense that anything has really changed. And for most of us in that position, it's only a matter of time before we slip back into our own sinful habits and our undefeated living. But indwelling, indwelling is a different matter. When the Holy Spirit takes over and Jesus starts to live through you from the inside, that's a different story. Because your desires and motivations start to change, maybe not all at once. Maybe not all at once, but it's definitely happening You may not love God perfectly, you may not obey God perfectly, but the desire to do so is now coming out of your gratitude to Him, your love for Him, and from a desire to know more of Jesus, not from your guilt like it used to, not from a need to impress other people like maybe it used to, not from from some desire to prove to yourself that you're a good Christian of some kind. Not only that, but Christ as sanctifier And we need to understand this because most of us stop at the halfway point, but Christ as sanctifier means more than just getting rid of sinful habits. It also means the power to make a difference for God in the lives of other people. It means serving Him cheerfully and not grudgingly. It means seeing God do things through you in the lives of others that would never happen if it was up to you on your own, because now it's Jesus doing the serving. It's Jesus doing the teaching. It's Jesus doing the encouraging or the evangelizing or whatever else you're doing to minister to others. It's not you doing it. It's Jesus doing it through you. When A.B. Simpson first met Christ as a sanctifier and not just as a Savior, the first thing that happened in his heart was that his heart broke for the city of Louisville, not with the feeble compassion of A.B. Simpson, but with the boundless compassion of Jesus, which was now operating in his heart. And so he began to reach out to the other pastors in the area, calling them to join with his church to pray and to reach the lost and hurting people around them. And there was a mighty move of God in that city, and a church that had been horribly divided by being in border territory throughout the entire civil war started to experience healing and unity. When Jesus Christ starts living through you, it can revolutionize your life and often the lives of people around you as well. So, how does this happen? That's our last big question, right? If, If sanctification is a gift from God that we receive by faith, and if sanctification has this kind of power with Jesus actually living His life through us, then how do we get it? How do we get it? How do we obtain it? Well, there's four words, four verbs. The first one is thirst, thirst, Jesus in John 7, and John's very clear to specify that he's talking about the Holy Spirit in this. Jesus says this, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink and out of him will flow rivers of living water. You ever try to force someone to drink when they're not thirsty and they don't want to drink? Ever had like a patient that came home from the hospital or somebody that you had to give a whole bunch of water to, like 32 ounces of water, and you're trying to jam it into them? Isn't that frustrating? You think maybe it's frustrating for God too, trying to do that for us? A lot of us never experience the Christ life and the fullness of the Holy Spirit simply because we don't want it badly enough. The frustration of spiritual defeat and lifeless living has not yet driven us to our knees. The emptiness of living for worldly goals and dreams and defining ourselves by our riches or our achievements or our reputation or those of our children, that emptiness hasn't become apparent to us yet. And so for some of us, the only step and the first step today in this process is just to pray that God will make you thirstier than you are that's right, that's right. and emptying yourself of some of these idols to make room for God's Spirit. To come in the second verb is ask this one's kind of simple actually remember, remember we said the holy spirit's fullness is just a gift from god see if this rings a bell somebody said this one time if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your heavenly father give the holy spirit to those who ask him you have not because you ask not have you ever asked god to fill you with his holy spirit Verb number two, ask. The third one is surrender. This is where it gets kind of dicey, right? Surrender. I was a sophomore in college when I first really met Jesus as my sanctifier and experienced the power of the Holy Spirit actually doing something in my life really for the first time, although I didn't know what to call it at the time. I had been living as a mostly lukewarm Christian for several years at that point, and now under the pressures of college life, it it was starting to catch up to me. I was so stressed out from being involved in too many activities. I was hanging out with a group of friends from freshman year who were absolute poison to my walk with God and my spiritual life. Even my academics, which had always been my strong suit, were starting to suffer. And one night, I found myself over at my lab partner's dorm room copying his answers from a homework assignment that I didn't understand in the least. Now, that may not seem like a huge deal, but that had never happened to me before in my life. And in my relationship with him, I was usually the one helping him, but now I was helpless. And the shame and indignity of that night finally broke me. I don't know who was watching that evening as I walked back to my own dorm, but at the time I didn't care. I literally fell to my knees at the top of an outdoor stairway in front of his dorm, and I just broke down in God's presence. And I surrendered my life to him, my studies, my relationships, whatever it took. And I asked him to please take the driver's seat because I was about to crash the car. Over the next few days and weeks, something changed in my life. I actually wanted to worship God for the first time. I mean, I'd always like singing and music, so, but it wasn't that this time. This was like actually I needed to praise Him. Amen. There was a peace I didn't really understand that came in and it brought my stress down to a manageable level. Then I suddenly found myself wanting to be with my Christian friends instead of the other ones who have been dragging me down for so long. Now, some of these changes were subtle. Some of them were a little more dramatic. But, but here's the new thing. They were internal. They were internal changes. Something had happened inside of me, not outside, and now I know who was responsible for it. But the key word for me at that time was surrender. Was He Lord or not? I had to give up the idea of trying to run my own life and give it over to Jesus. Thirst, ask, surrender, and the last word is abide. This is a Jesus word that comes from John chapter 15. Abide in me, he said, and you will bear much fruit. Paul in Galatians chapter 5 actually describes this in his own words as keeping step with the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. Most of you know that I am not from the South, and in the place I grew up, it was really important to learn how to ski, to downhill ski. Everybody did it. So um, my dad took me for the first time when I was seven years old. Now, the problem with most ski hills is that the hardest, most difficult, and highest trails are usually served by the lifts that are easiest to get on, the chair lifts, right? But, but the, the easy beginner trails, for some sadistic reason, are only accessible by something called a rope tow, which is a big, thick rope on a big pulley that yanks you up the side of the mountain. And the rope tow is not easy to ride, especially not for a seven-year-old boy. You've got to keep your skis pointed directly up the hill. You've got to get just the right angle on that rope. And when you grab it, you've got to get ready for something to happen. And you've got to hold on for dear life. Listen, the process of sanctification is a lot like taking that rope toe up the hill. The power to climb the hill does not come from you. It comes from Jesus. But what we are called to do is hang on for the ride. And that's not always easy. Sanctification and the Christ life is not stepping onto an escalator. It's grabbing onto a rope toe. Now what does this look like? To abide, to hang on for the ride, to keep in step with the Spirit. Well, it might not surprise you to learn that what it looks like is regular time in God's Word, seeking God often in prayer, confessing sins as God brings them to your attention, forgiving people who wrong you, taking part in the life of the local church, Not to prove yourself or to prove to anybody else that you're a good Christian, but because you're seeking more of God, and you're not giving up until you find Him. But abiding also means one more thing. It means obeying. It means obeying God when he tells you to do something. Now, you might say, well, wait, wasn't obedience the point of sanctification? Isn't obe- are you saying we have to earn our salvation or earn our sanctification? No, that's not what I'm saying. This is not earning your salvation, and this is not getting a higher score on the Christian maturity test. This is simply obeying God when he leads you to take a step away from sin and towards freedom. For Makanzu, the African pastor, you learned about earlier in that video, it meant apologizing to his teachers for cheating on exams and disrupting their classes, it meant getting rid of his stash of pornography, and it meant confessing his sin to his wife. For me, it was distancing myself from a bunch of people that I had fun being with, but who were dragging me away from Christ. For you, it might be starting a regular Bible study reading practice, it might be joining a small group, it might be fasting for a day, praying just for God to come and meet you. And listening. It might be confessing a sin to a believing friend. It might be quitting an activity that leads you into immorality more often than not. It might be breaking up with that boyfriend or girlfriend who has been taking God's place in your life for way too long. I don't know what it is for you, but I do know this. The first time I grabbed hold of that rope toe when I was seven years old, I ended up face down in the snow in a tangled pile of skis and poles and they had to stop the rope while everybody else waited for me to get up only to embarrass myself and face plant a second time the next time I grabbed the rope. I remember it well. But you know what? I didn't give up. I didn't give up and soon I got the hang of it and eventually I got to enjoy the rush of that rope yanking me up that hill. So if you fail, if you fail and you feel like you've messed up and you've let God down and nothing's ever going to change, Don't give up. Don't give up. Sanctification is something that God wants for you, and He's determined to give you this gift. So keep trusting Him and keep hanging on for dear life because He wants you as much or more than you do. He wants it for you. So as we close, I want to give you an invitation this morning to make a decision, to make a decision to come to Christ, not just as your Savior, but as your sanctifier. Now, some people say, well, isn't this a process Aren't we talking about like a gradual process? You're talking almost as if it's some sort of one time blessing. It's both. It's both. Is sanctification a gradual thing or is it a crisis? It's both. It's both. It's a process for sure, but it starts, so often it gets kickstarted by a crisis, and that's often a very memorable and distinct point in time and in your life. Romans 6 says this, and I'm going to paraphrase to get the tense right, but here's what Romans 6 says. It says, count on yourself being dead to sin and alive to God. Stop presenting the parts of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness and make a one-time definitive presentation of yourself to God as one who has been brought from death to life. Romans 12:1 says it this way again speaking to Christians, in view of God's mercies all that he's done for you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That the Greek tense indicates not a continual action but a simple one-time act, present your body as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so as we sing our final song this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. I'm going to invite the elders, all the ones who can come here to the front, just come to the front, any other church leaders that want to come and pray with people, come forward. And if you've never experienced, and you know, we say be filled with the Holy Spirit, that's a, that's a metaphor. What that really means is to be totally under the control of the Holy Spirit. doesn't mean that He's some sort of gas that comes in and fills you up and you start to float or something. It means that you're under His control. If that's never happened to you, and, and, and you've never really come to know Christ as your sanctifier in this way, or... Or if you have, but you've fallen off the rope, and you need to get back on, and this morning is the day for that, then on behalf of your heavenly Father, let me invite you to come and pray with a brother or a sister at the front today, and receive this free gift of God by faith. Don't come unless you're thirsty. Don't fool around with God. Don't come unless you're thirsty. Don't come unless you're ready for something to change in your life. But if you are, then please come and pray. We're not in a hurry this morning. He's a good God, and He gives His children good gifts. He's a good Father. He's a good Daddy. And for those who come asking for the Holy Spirit, Jesus says He is more than willing to give us His Spirit, get this, without measure. Are you willing to receive the gift that He is so anxious to give you? Let's pray as the worship team comes.